This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. tell you a little story about the history of invention. This is story time. So go ahead and get comfy. Get comfy. As we say in the style of meditation I teach here on campus, if you could make yourself even 5 or 10% more comfortable, go ahead and do that. Once upon a time in the 18th century, the 1700s, at least in English-speaking countries, Inventors were not celebrated. In fact, they were seen as con artists, hustlers, and swindlers. In the 18th century, you did not want your kid to become an inventor. And by the way, we know all this because of Christine McLeod's very good book, Heroes of Invention, Technology, Liberalism, and British Identity, 1750 to 1914. Then, in the 19th century, this begins to change. Why it changes is complicated, but among the reasons is simply that people are seeing the benefits of the Industrial Revolution and the new things that were arising through it, including railroads and steam power and eventually telegraphs and telephones and electricity and so many other things. And by the end of the 19th century, we see the rise of cults of invention, which in the U.S. focuses on figures like Edison and Graham Bell and all the other dudes. You know these dudes. This is the moment of heroic inventors. But then things begin to change again. Corporations, including the railroads and companies like DuPont and General Motors, begin to build R&D labs. They decide to pull invention inside the firm itself instead of relying on external inventors. It's the classic buy versus build question. Also, the nature of invention itself begins to change. It becomes far more centered in science, including the creation of new materials. So R&D becomes far more organized and big, and it's less about individual inventors who then kind of fall by the wayside and become less significant. By the mid 20th century, we have the glory days of places like Bell Labs, the famous R&D lab, which received many Nobel prizes and created many breakthrough inventions, including like the transistor. Then we'll do one more change. For a variety of reasons, after the 1970s, corporate R&D labs begin to decline. And here in the U.S., at least, the R&D system 
becomes much more centered in universities. And I usually lean on authors who really think that this last change has led to failure, that our university R&D system just isn't paying off. Uh, some of my friends have real nostalgia for the earlier days, the mid-century R- corporate R&D labs like Bell Labs. Well, this little bedtime story I just told you, you know, it has truth to it. It's not totally inaccurate, but it does have a number of oversimplifications in it, and some things are just wrong. My guest on this episode is Eric Hintz, a historian and fellowship coordinator with the Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History. In his book, American Independent Inventors in the Era of Corporate R&D, Hintz pushes back on the idea that independent inventors went away with the rise of the corporate R&D lab. That's just not true at all. New ideas continue to come from all kinds of places, including from independent inventors. Hintz tells the story of those independent inventors, including how they related to corporations and how they worked during World War I and World War II, which in the historical literature have been told as kind of high water points of organized research. Think of the Manhattan Project and A-bomb. Hintz also tells the fascinating story of inventors who are women and or black or other people of color. These folks often were not recognized for their inventions, which even sometimes were stolen from them, but also importantly, they were not going to fit into corporate R&D labs, especially in the early 20th century. So independent invention was their best chance. And so this leads to really interesting dynamics. I had a wonderful time talking with Eric. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And hey, folks, get excited. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today, bud. Lee, uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to encounter a book that doesn't have a colon, you know? <laughs> it's like, you're just so rare to bump into an academic, you know, like a kind of, you know, this is an academic history in many ways. Um, and yet you you managed to fit in the, the, you know, what the book is about without using a colon. So I thought that was a beautiful thing. So when you're telling people about this book, what do you say it's about and what were you trying to do with it, man? No, I, I appreciate that observation because uh, the, the series editor uh, for MIT Press, my colleague, Joyce Beattie, uh, you know, she's all about, you know, colon cancer, right? Yeah. Like don't have a colon in your title. And uh, her thing is that some of the, you know, uh, Amazon or websites or whatever, sometimes they don't always pick up or render that right or whatever. Anyway, so yes, uh, Joyce was very adamant that we should not have a a colon in the title. But uh, yeah, American independent inventors in an era of corporate R&D. The question, you know, what was I trying to achieve? Um, It's kind of a deceptively simple question. Who, Who invents, right? Or like, what are the sources of invention? And for a long time, well, let's go back, right? So in the 19th century, who's inventing, right? It's the sort of heroic American inventor. It's Thomas Edison. It's Nikola Tesla. It's Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, Then around 1900, uh, you start to see the corporatization of invention, right? So you get to, you get things like um, Bell Labs, AT&T. You get the General Electric Research Laboratory, big R&D labs at DuPont, Kodak. 
RCA, other other firms. And the notion uh, for a long time was that those big corporate R&D labs wiped out the individual inventor. But of course, we know, you know, we know the stories of the garage inventor, right? It's like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, you know, uh, Zuckerberg uh, writes the code for Facebook in his dorm room. So we know that there are these individual and small scale uh, inventors around, but uh, kind of what was their story? Why, why was this belief that people, that these individual inventors had disappeared? Uh, and why was there that misperception? That was kind of the big question that, that had motivated me to, to work on the book. And how did um, you come to work on this topic? This was your dissertation. I mean, your dissertation was on this topic, right? How did you end up choosing this? Correct. Um, so, um, in, you know, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, uh, shout out to the University of Pennsylvania, History and Sociology of Science Department, got great training there. So I was there from 2003 to, to 2010. And uh, I'm a career changer. Uh, I had worked as an IT consultant in San Francisco, Silicon Valley in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, I came to academia and I got really interested the first couple of years I was at UPenn in like um, religion and science. I was really into like the Galileo affair and the Scopes trial and like Darwin and all the stuff. And I was like, I had written a bunch of seminar papers and I was like, I'm definitely gonna do this, something like this for my dissertation. So there in Philadelphia um, with UPenn, one of the uh, graduate courses I took uh, was actually taught at what was then called the Chemical Heritage Foundation, mm -hmm. now called the Science History Institute. It's a great um, sort of, uh, uh, repository for all kinds of uh, sources, journals, uh, papers, artifacts, and it's a great museum on the history of science in downtown uh, Philadelphia. So one of the people that worked there was Arthur Demrich. So at the time he was sort of running their oral history program. Uh, he was a postdoc there. And um, so Arthur was an adjunct to UPenn's uh, department. And so I took this graduate seminar with Arthur, with a bunch of my grad school buddies, and it was a method seminar. And we were supposed to, each week we learned about, you know, this week we're gonna learn about oral history, and this week we're gonna learn about archives, and this week we're gonna learn about, you know, how to read history from artifacts. And, and the, the project for the semester was you had to choose some uh, body of sources from the Chemical Heritage Foundation archives and write a research paper on that. So I'm like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, okay, religion and science, but I'll just do this thing, right? And so, so I found the papers uh, at CHF of this uh, inventor named Samuel Rubin. So who is Samuel Rubin? Samuel Rubin is a, a kind of an electrochemist. Uh, and he's, you know, invented a whole bunch of like button cell batteries, like these little tiny batteries that go in your watch, that go in your hearing aid, uh, that go in smoke detectors, stuff like that. And, uh, and he's also the inventor of Duracell batteries. So he had made this partnership with a firm called PR Mallory and they invent Duracell batteries. And so, you know, I'm working on this research project using the papers of Samuel Rubin and mid semester, Arthur, you know, I have a meeting with him to do the progress check. And he's like, so tell me about your project. I tell him all about Samuel Rubin. He's like, oh, that's interesting. So this guy is an individual inventor in 1950s, 1960s. That's an anomaly. Most people think that, um, you know, it's all about the corporate R&D labs at that point. You should look into that. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, had, I had no idea this was even a thing, right? I'm over here thinking about Darwin. Like, and, uh, and but that, that project and that sort of observation by Arthur started me on the road to sort of figuring out, okay, well, this, this guy is an anomaly in a way, but then he's not. I kept finding more and more stories 
of of people like Samuel Rubin and sort of undermine this notion that quote you know the you know the corporate R and D labs had had wiped out the individual inventor and so. Yeah. And so here we are talking about the book, you know, many, many years later. That's so funny. I didn't know about this connection between you and Arthur, because like later he becomes your boss, at the Lemelson Center. But I didn't know there was this whole other earlier, uh, which you were at the Lemelson Center first. It's not like he hired you in or anything, but it's just like this long running connection. I didn't know about. Yes. So, yeah. So Arthur Demerich suggests uh, sort of starts the book topic in 2004. Years go by, 2015, uh, he becomes the director of the Lemelson Center, my boss, and then uh, becomes one of the series editors of the Lemelson Center book series with MIT Press, all right? So he's seen the thing from end to end, basically. Well, that's so funny, man. So, um, you know, uh, my doctoral advisor was D David Hounchel, who's this kind of prominent historian of R&D, and I don't want to put any words or ideas in David's mouth, because he definitely was aware they were their independent inventors, but still... You know, when I did study the history of R&D in grad school and afterwards, I did end up with this false sensation that once R&D labs arose, independent inventors were eclipsed. Like that is a kind of model that was in my mind, right? So in your book, you point out that this kind of false belief has uh -huh. a history of its own. So where did the, you know, where did this kind of false narrative come from and how did it end up in my noggin? Yeah, so um, love David Hounschel, great scholar. And in fact, um, you know, at different scholarly meetings that I would attend, whether it was the Business History Conference or, you know, Society for the History of Technology, I would chat with David and he would say, oh, you should check out, like, I probably still have, like, he had, he's so, you know him, he's so precise, right? Yeah. He's like, uh, uh, he pulled out his business card and he wrote down the pages of his DuPont book. <laughs> to like look at the example, right? So it's like one of the examples in the book is this guy named Hudson Maxim. Hmm. He is a um, an independent inventor from New Jersey, but he has these innovations in like smokeless gunpowder. Hmm. And so DuPont has its R&D lab, but they basically uh, partner with the independent and license his innovations, right? And that's like one of the big themes of the book is like these sort of uh, inventor firm partnerships. And David, even though like he was very invested in telling the history of R&D, was also super generous to me and being like, you should check out this guy. Mm -hmm. He sounds like one of the guys you're working on. So shout out to, to David Hounschel. So back to your, your question, um, you know, what, what are the roots of this misperception? So, you know, corporations are corporations, you know, they're big. They have a big marketing budget. They are invested in people buying their products. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things I found in the early 20th century when these R&D labs are just getting off the ground at AT&T, Kodak, DuPont, is that they, um, the R&D labs are coming around at about the same time that like um, advertising, mm -hmm. I mean, advertising has been around forever, but like the real professionalization of like public relations is happening. And, um, you know, so all these corporations are doing a lot of advertising in general for their products um, and, you know, press releases and they're building pavilions in Atlantic city. And they're doing all these, they're kind of experimenting with all these different techniques of advertising their products and their brands. And they start advertising R and D, right? So a company like DuPont sees the fact that they have 400 scientists on their staff as like a selling point, right? Like you yeah. can trust Duco paint, you can trust, you know, celluloid or film or whatever, because we've got PhD scientists working on it. And 
while they're trumpeting, they're, um, you know, extolling the virtues of their PhD scientists. They're also um, kind of denigrating the independence, right? They're like, oh, individual inventors, that's the old way of inventing, right? We're more sophisticated now. We have PhDs, we're chemists, we have a lab. And so, you know, the independent inventors don't have a marketing budget like DuPont, right? Maybe they write a letter to the editor of the newspaper, but DuPont's taking out thousands of ads. They've got a pavilion at Atlantic City. And so, you know, fast forward 50, 60 years, what are all the sources that exist for historians to find? It's all the corporate stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the things that I kind of uncovered is like, there's just this imbalance and kind of um, the sources that are sort of trumpeting the, the R&D labs and denigrating the independents. One of the things that I really like about your book is that um, you track a number of women and minority inventors. And one of the things you say in that early, or, you know, the early chapter is that, you know, that this kind of R&D narrative, I think kind of like, you know, makes invisible or helps make invisible these, these kinds of inventors who maybe don't fit our mold. So how do you, how do you see that happening and like us losing track of, women and black inventors, for instance. Yeah, that was, um, that was one of the most interesting findings of the book is, you know, why are, you know, so independent inventors are, are invisible in general in this era of the early 20th century, but especially mm -hmm. so black and, and women inventors. So as you know, this is like, uh, you know, a time uh, where those groups have limited civil rights, right? Before 1920, women can't vote in the United States. Um, there are married property laws uh, where in some states, women can't own property. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, during this period, it's the era of Jim Crow, a lot of uh, racial anti-Black violence. Um, and, and, you know, you know, there are just fewer opportunities for black people. There's less opportunity for education, less access to capital, less access to materials. And so both of those groups have uh, disadvantages. And uh, they also, um, you know, unfortunately, because of the biases of the time, have a negative perception in the marketplace. So what I found is that, um, you know, let's take women, for example. So there's, let's say you live in a state um, with a married property law and you're not allowed to own property. So you invent something and you take out a patent. Well, you can't even own that patent. It's intellectual property, right? And so what I found is that to sort of circumvent this and shout out to Zarina Khan and other economists who've, who've done a lot of this good work, um, women would take out their patents in the names of their husbands, brothers, male lawyers, right? So literally um, they were participants in their own erasure mm -hmm. in order to just see the thing get out. Uh, same thing happened with black inventors. I tell the story of uh, Garrett Morgan, a heartbreaking story. So this is a black inventor in Cleveland, 19 teens. Uh, he has several inventions. Uh, one is like the sort of three light traffic light, you know, red, yellow, green, that sort of thing. Uh, and also this uh, gas mask. It's like a smoke hood that you would put on. And he um, was very successful, um, sold a bunch of these to like chemists and fire departments and stuff like that. But he hired white actors uh, to take a picture with the thing and put in his trade literature. He would hire white actors to represent him at trade shows and stuff like that. And um, so again, sort of participating in his own sort of um, ob obscurity, right? And then, then there's this dramatic uh, explosion in Cleveland uh, at the waterworks and they call him 
and he puts on the smoke hood and he rescues all the workers. And there's a picture of him in the Cleveland newspaper and his sort of racial identity is revealed. Hmm. And then like all the fire departments like cancel their orders. So it was like this totally heartbreaking tragedy and irony where like when he obscured his racial identity, he was successful. And then when his true racial identity uh, was made known, like he suffered commercially because of racism. So those those, you know, the, you know, basically the, the social situation in the United States where it was, you know, uh, no, no women's suffrage, no rights for, for black people uh, that really impacted them commercially when it came to trying to get their inventions out. You point out that in, in the context of like R&D labs arising and, you know, com- this is a period when this early 20th century period is when a moment when corporates are becoming much more formalized and modern and structured and, and stuff that independent inventors had to like uh, invent or innovate new strategies for dealing with corporations, like what their relationship was is going to be. So tell us, a, you know, a bit about what you see in terms of like what you call make, sell and ally. What, what, are, what are some strategies they're exploring for getting their stuff out there when, you know, there's also this formalization going on in corporations. Right. Now, I appreciate that question. I mean, one of the big things I wanted to understand was, so if you're David, you're an individual inventor and there's Goliath over here, DuPont, AT&T, Bell Labs, whatever, like, how do you survive? Like, like just basically, like, how did they do it, right? And so the answer I found uh, was they developed a lot of different strategies and uh, they would apply different strategies depending on the particulars of their financial situation or the particulars of the invention and like how uh, mature the market was for that particular thing. And, and there were all kinds of things, but it basically came down to these three strategies that you mentioned. So make, sell, and lie. So what is make? Make is the classic entrepreneur, right? So right. I come up with an invention and, uh, you know, I start a firm and I make and sell the invention. And so the, the classic story there that I tell is about the, uh, the inventor of the, uh, the flexible, the bendy straw, right? Like uh, Joseph Friedman uh, was that guy. He tried to license it to the existing straw companies. They didn't want it. He's like, I guess I better start my own company. And uh, so he, you know, becomes an entrepreneur and starts selling straws. Sell uh, is a strategy that... Um, which basically is like you invent something, you uh, get a patent, and then if for whatever reason, maybe you don't want to go into entrepreneurship, you don't want to compete against the big boys, you just sell the patent outright for a flat fee. Uh, so one of the stories I tell there is about this guy named Henry Gaisman, uh, who invents what he calls the autographic Kodak. So it's a little device that you put on the back of a Kodak camera, and it exposes a piece of the negative. And with a stylus, you can like write on there like, oh, you know, Patrick's birthday, you know, 1915 or something like that, right? And so he sells the patent to Eastman Kodak for like $300,000. That's it, right? Like Kodak takes it from there, they commercialize it, and they sort of, you know, his name doesn't appear anywhere in the Kodak ads, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's another reason for invisibility, right? It's like once you sell your thing to the corporation, you're not getting any credit, right? The corporate brand is on the thing. And then the last strategy is this alliance strategy. And that's kind of what we talked about that David Hounschel tipped me off to, which is um, sometimes um, the the individual inventors in the firms wanted to strike more of a partnership where maybe there was something specific to the invention 
uh, where the firm could use the inventor's expertise. So like they would hire, right. you know, they, you know, DuPont hired Hudson Maxim as a consultant. They paid him uh, uh, royalties. They licensed the invention and paid him royalties on a, on a schedule, right? So like they only pay if the thing sells. Mm. Uh, so it allowed the um, the firm some flexibility, right? You know, whereas an R and D lab is a fixed cost, right? You have the salaries, you have the lab overhead, all that stuff. If you do one of these licensing deals with an independent, you're only paying royalties and maybe like a small per diem or retainer. Uh, you're only paying if the thing sells, right? So it's kind of a like a hedge strategy and maybe a little safer financially. Uh, and then you get the benefit of all of the expertise of the individual. And if it doesn't work out, you just terminate the contract. Mm -hmm. So I found that, you know, the, the firms, um, you know, while their advertising departments are sort of denigrating the independence and trumpeting their labs, right. um, the labs are not able to supply all the inventions they need. They actually have to go outside the lab and partner with individual inventors. And mm -hmm. so that was one of the great ironies that I found is this, you know, um, a lot of the partnerships between firms and individuals. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, especially because there's, you know, there's earlier arguments that say like R&D labs were trying to reduce dependence on uh, independence, right, uh, is one argument out there. So maybe maybe it was a strategy to try to do that, but they still end up relying on them, at least in some case. That's pretty interesting. Yep. Yeah, part of what's, you know, prior to the R&D labs, if you're just if you're relying on the marketplace for inventions, it's um, you never know when Eureka is going to strike, right? You don't know mm -hmm. when some inventors out there is going to invent the thing you need. Or if they do invent the thing and you purchase the patent, it could be a lemon, mm -hmm. right? So there's all these uncertainties and sort of that market-based um, strategy where you're looking outside the firm for inventions. And so that's why you like bring the inventors inside the firm, right? They right. work on exactly what you need. To do it's a very sort of Chandlerian vertical integration, right? Of mm -hmm. uh, of of innovation, right? You bring in innovation inside, you manage it just like any other um, function of the firm. Mm -hmm. So another thing you see is that eventually the, these independent inventors start banding together and forming organizations. So like, why why is that happening, and what and when and where is it happening? Why why do you see them coming together to kind of join a cause? Yeah, so I it was really interesting. Um, one of the ways I found out a lot of things about inventors is through the groups that they formed, mm -hmm. right? If you think about uh, De Tocqueville and associations, right? Like people form clubs, right? And so right. inventors formed clubs. And um, there were kind of three, generally three reasons that the inventors, independent inventors would form groups, right? So while they were independent, they still found strength in numbers and that there were things that they wanted to work on together. So the first reason was commercialization. Um, so you're an independent, you may not, you know, uh, have a great sense of the marketplace, you may need a little help getting a patent. So if you band your resources together, um, you know, the idea was that you could get people to look at your invention, tell you if it's a good one, oh, you should call this manufacturer, get this model maker. Uh, by kind of having the hive mind, you could, they could help one another commercialize mm -hmm. their inventions. The second reason was around uh, politics and patent reform. So, um, you know, in the in the U.S. patent laws, uh, the onus is on the patent holder to defend, right? So, someone can anyone can infringe your patent. It's on you, the patent holder, to to go after them right. if they infringe. And so, the deck is stacked, right? So, the corporations have much greater resources than the individuals. Yeah. 
And what they found is that the, uh, and what I found in, in the research is that um, many corporations would willfully infringe the patents of independent inventors knowing that they they had greater legal resources. They could just wear them down, right? Oh, you, you want to sue AT&T? Come at us, yeah, right? Go for it, buddy. And like, good luck, right? And they would just wear them down with like a decade of, of litigation and basically like steal their patents, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a lot of, there's some great stories in there. You know, people might be aware of the TV inventor, Philo Farnsworth versus RCA. There's a couple of good books about that. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, a lot of kind of malicious uh, pro- uh, infringement lawsuits and stuff like that. So that was the second one is they wanted to reform the patent laws along those lines to sort of level the playing field. And then the third reason they would band together is just like mutual aid and support, right? So you're you're a quirky independent inventor, right? Like you're you're not the kind of person that, you know, puts on a suit and works in a corporation. You're you know the wild-haired person, you know, working in your garage. And so like where can I find other like-minded people? that I can hang out with. And so there were these, you know, the the National Inventors Congress uh, was one of these groups in the 1920s, 30s and 40s where they like embraced the eccentricities of the inventor. Mm -hmm. And I also, um, you know, going back to what we talked about a minute ago is I found some um, more loosely organized, I would call them communities uh, of women inventors and African-American inventors, same Mm -hmm. sort of thing where like you're living in an era where you're marginalized. And so it's good to sort of come together and find strength in numbers to try to advance, um, you know, other women inventors, other black inventors. And so they would put together, you know, like a women's inventors fair or a black inventors fair mm-hmm. or that kind of stuff to, to bring more attention to their, to their inventions. So yeah, that was fun. Um, kind of reading it, you know, even though these individual inventors like cherish their autonomy and their in- independence, they found that it was useful to, to band together, uh, to, to work on the things that they needed to work on. Yeah. Another thing you find is that these kind of inventor organizations are kind of unstable and they tend to kind of like come into being and, you know, then go out after 15 or however many years. So, what, I mean, what explains that instability, do you think? Yeah, good observation. Exactly. So in looking at the records of these groups that I found, these clubs and associations only last for about 10 to 20 years and then they fall apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, you know, being an independent inventor, an individual inventor, it's a sort of precarious thing, right? They're seeking yeah. strength in numbers, but all the reasons that an individual's existence is precarious, like if you put 10 or 20 or 25 of those precarious people together, the group is still precarious, right? Yeah. Like, um, and, and um, you know, part of that is, you know, let's say you're a physicist, right? The American Physical Society. I don't know what year it was founded, 1888 or something like that. I mean, these are physicists. They're highly trained. They all have a similar training. Um, It's, you know, more homogenous in that sense. Inventors Mm -hmm. are working on all kinds of things, right? Like they, you know, I might be working on like, you know, automobile stuff or I might be working on lasers or, and so there's a heterogeneity there that makes it hard for the center to hold. Uh, Yeah. And there's absolutely no educational requirement or status requirement or anything to be an inventor, right? Like, yeah. or to join one of these inventors groups, right? To, to join the American Physical Society, you probably have to have an advanced degree in physics and like that kind of stuff yeah. or like, like any kind of profession, right? If you're a lawyer and you want to join the bar, you have to pass the bar exam. Well, there's nothing like that for independent inventors, right? Anybody can be an independent inventor, which is part of what makes them great, but also, you know, it's not an elite 
high status thing, right? And so like, if you're not able to sort of attract those kinds of people, like it's, you know, more inclined to probably fall apart after 10 or 20 years. Um, I thought I had thought a lot about patents and patent reforms, but I realized I'd never thought about it from the perspective of independent inventors. And I just deal with other problems. They're like a lot of, you know, a lot of times I'm, I've been, I've looked more at like corporate on corporate stuff, uh, you know, whether what the patent system does for consumers, but I never really thought about like what problems it presented for the kinds of folks you're following. So what was like the, what was the independent inventor perspective? I mean, not that there's a unified, you know, perspective across mm -hmm. all these folks, but what were, what were independent inventors seeing in the patent system and what problems did they perceive in it that maybe, you know, wouldn't have been on corporations' radars, for instance? Yeah, um, I mean, we touched on this a little bit earlier and mostly um, what was upsetting the independent inventors was what they perceived as the economic inequity in the patent system, right? So as we said before, if you're a patent holder, the onus is on you to defend your patent if mm -hmm. you feel it's been infringed. And, um, you know, so um, individual inventors felt at times that corporations with their superior resources would willfully okay. infringe their patents. And they didn't have nearly the resources to defend the patents that the that the corporations would. And so they felt like that was unfair. Um, part of what they felt was unfair, too, is this idea of what you might call suppressing patents. So, um, you know, so let's say you're an, uh, an individual inventor and, um, you know, you've got a, a really cool um, uh, electrical light. I'll just make something up. An electrical light bulb invention. Um, and you license that invention to General Electric, thinking, great, I'm going to earn royalties from General Electric and I'm going to make a million dollars. Well, General Electric licenses your patent, buys your patent, and sticks it in a drawer. The reason they suppress the patent is they've got their own preferred patents, right? right? They basically want to take you off of the um, competitive landscape, right? Now, if they own your patent, no one else can get it and compete against them, right? So, like, a lot of these firms wanted to build up massive patent portfolios um, commercialize their preferred patent and then like all the rest were like in a drawer so no one else could have them right, right? so there was this sort of like monopoly um, patents became a tool uh, like you know there's a lot of you know since 1890 in the Sherman Act a lot of anti-monopoly legislation but a patent is essentially a 14 or 17 year monopoly right yeah. the term has changed but you can you can keep people from competing on that thing for a yeah, short yeah. term and if you gather up a whole bunch of patents, you can kind of control um, a certain technology sector or a certain product sector. And so right. that was one of the strategies that the, the corporations did and the independents didn't like that at all. Um, and, um, you know, there was just a lot of delaying tactics, you know, uh, the things that corporations do, they stall, they like grind people down with lots of depositions <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it's just... You know, so that they just felt like it was unfair. And, and, and one of the, you know, arguments that I make is that, you know, the, the independents try and try again uh, to get these reforms, um, but they don't have the juice, right? We talked about how these um, associations fell apart after 10 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. They have no lobbying power uh, in the way that the corporations have something like the National Association of Manufacturers. It's just an uneven fight. And so, you know, the patent laws basically stay the same. Uh, and to the advantage of the uh, the corporations until about uh, you know the late 1990s. Hmm. 
Another another one of your chapters that felt like a real breath of fresh air for me was the one uh, um, on World War One and World War Two. And the reason it felt like a breath of fresh air is because, I mean, if we look at the way we tell U.S. history, U.S. history of technology and business, uh, in science for that matter, and we look at the wars, they were like these moments of like big organizations. World War One, you know, like we can talk about like the National Science Council and all these kinds of groups. Then in World War II, you know, you, you eventually have the birth of the, the NSF. You have the Manhattan Project. You have all these huge things. You have Harvard and MIT and that, you know, all those stories we know so well. You know, I've never heard someone talk about the role of independent inventors in that, that space. It's always like the big stuff, you know, and that's the kind of narrative that we've gotten. So, you know, how, how did first, how did you get on to like thinking about independent inventors in, in the wars? And then, you know, what did you find when you started looking into it? No, I, I really appreciate that setup because this was one of the first things that uh, I dug my teeth into, sunk my teeth into when I started doing this research back in, in graduate school. Um, you know, how did I get on to this question of, of uh, individual inventors in the military? So, you know, in the same way that I found that um, individual inventors found patronage from their corporate rivals, individual inventors also found patronage, patronage from the military. Mm-hmm. And the person that, you know, that kind of studied this a lot was Thomas Hughes. So the late great uh, historian of technology uh, from uh, UPenn. Uh, and, uh, you know, he has a book, American Genesis. Uh, and one of the chapters in there, I think, is called Brain Mill for the Military. And he talks about um, World War I specifically and uh, the Naval Consulting Board. You know, one of his first books, one of Thomas Hughes' first books is on Elmer Sperry. Well, Elmer Sperry is this individual inventor, uh, you know, early 20th century, 1900s, 19-teens, and he invents this gyroscope. Uh, and, you know, if you've ever spun a top, you know, it has this sort of uh, stability, right? And so he's really able to sell the gyroscope to the Navy because if you run a gyroscope in a ship, it keeps the ship from turning over, right? It keeps mm. the ship stable. And it also keeps the gun stable when you're aiming the gun. And he finds all these like military applications for the gyroscope. So he is very successful. Hughes had written a lot, both in the individual book and in this um, Sperry's biography and also in American Genesis about this kind of um, connection between inventors and the military. Another example that he does for World War I is the Wright brothers. Hmm. So one of the great uses, early uses of, you know, the first client or the first uh, customer for the airplane is the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. And so he writes about that extensively, right? So, um, so, so I sort of got onto that. I was aware of the Naval Consulting Board uh, through Hughes, but then I just happened to find these papers at the National Archives on this group called the National Inventors uh, Council. And it's a started in 1940, and it's basically much like the Naval Consulting Board. It's a crowdsourcing operation. Hmm. So in World War II, while the machinery government is like making the Office of Scientific Research and Development and the Manhattan Project and all these big institutional uh, projects, um, they're also setting up a crowdsourcing office for inventions. It's very simple. It's like right out of the Department of Commerce because that's where the patent office is. And they put up a bunch of posters and, and um, post offices and uh, entry schools and factories. And they say, hey, if you have an invention that you think will help uh, the United States prepare for World War II, send it to the National Inventors Council, Washington, D.C., here's the address. So as you can imagine, like all kinds of crazy stuff 
Yeah, yeah, came into the the Department of Commerce. It was like, okay, you know, we're going to drop cement uh, on a German ship. And then when it rains, they'll turn to cement. Right. It's like all this kind of crazy stuff. (laughs) We're going to put homing beacons on dolphins. And it was like, you know, it's crazy stuff. But there was really good stuff, too. So part Mm -hmm. of their job was to sort through all this stuff. And so I mentioned the Samuel Rubin story um, way back in the beginning of the interview. And this is the the button cell battery guy. So in the Pacific theater, it's hot and it's humid. And if your battery isn't sealed, uh, basically the battery spoils before you can use it. And so now you can't use your walkie talkie. Mm -hmm. So the inventors council puts out a bulletin. Hey, we need someone to invent like a better tropical battery. And Ruben is like, okay, I'll give it a try. And so he invents a sealed battery so it doesn't have the ambient effects. And it's this little button cell. But if you put 72 of them together, it can power uh, a walkie-talkie. And so that like is like a five-time mm. improvement on service life and all that stuff. It's a great story. And then Mallory takes that from the military after the war and it goes into watches and all that kind of stuff. And another great story coming out of that was this uh, Miami beachcomber. Uh, named Charles Hedman. So he was like on the beach and he had devised this little thing to sort of find metal at the beach, like little coins and stuff like that. And he sends Mm. it to the National Inventors Council and they like turn it into a mine detector, which was hugely important for all these amphibious landings in the Pacific, D-Day, Normandy, all that stuff. And so uh, a couple of really important um, inventions come from these small scale inventors. And, And like you said, historiographically, much of the attention rightly goes to the big projects, the atom bomb, all this stuff. Yeah. But the small scale inventors also have their day as well in World War II. Hmm. Um, your final kind of substantive chapter is, um, you know, about post-war eclipse and then 21st century resurgence. And you have a really nice chart in there showing like, uh, you know, basically flat patents going to corporations and then early in the 21st century, like, increasing numbers of patents going to individuals. So what, what do you think explains these oh, other, other way around, other way around. So the, the, the inventors, the individuals always are flat, right? 10 to 15,000. But then after World War II, corporate uh, patents hockey stick. I'm looking at the chart wrong. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. I've never fucked up something so hard when I'm reading the chart. <laughs> So, <laughs> so, all right. Well, I totally misread that chart, but like, what what do you think explains this kind of post-war eclipse uh, of the individual inventors, and and why do you think you see a, a 21st century resurgence? Yeah. So for for your, uh, it's uh, page 209. I was just looking at the book here. We can we can edit all this out, right? No, no, no. I, I, I own my mistakes. The I, mistakes I are what makes it real, mistakes. right? It's all, this yeah, is authentic exactly. conversation. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, okay. So um, yeah. So the 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 chat the title of that chapter is uh, I have to remember it myself. It's a uh, post war eclipse, twenty first century. century resurgence. You okay. got it. Yeah. So. You know, when when you talk about um, David Hounshell, uh, Margaret Graham, um, some of our friends and, and fellow scholars that have written about um, the history of R&D, this moment coming out of World War II is like the apotheosis of corporate R&D, right? Like, so like mm-hmm. DuPont literally builds the Hanford facility that like enriches the plutonium that makes the bomb, right? I mean, it's like... Yeah. And, and they they make the nylon that makes the parachutes, right? Like they, I mean, it's heroic, right? Like they're doing all this stuff. And then, you know, after 
you know, World War II, you know, the United States is like the only superpower standing, right? And we just like clean up economically, right? Like DuPont yeah. is making celluloid film and nylon and neoprene and like paint yeah, for yeah. your car. And like, I mean, they're just like exploding with innovation. Same thing with AT&T Bell Labs, you know, they build computers, they build the C++ programming language. They, I mean, there's like endless yeah. lasers, like all this stuff, like uh, um, satellite telephony and on and on. And, and that sort of story is repeated across a lot of different corporate R&D labs in the 50s and 60s. And so that's the post-war eclipse, right? So from the point of view of, of an independent inventor, right? So in World War II, we sort of have our moment. We like do some cool things during the war. But then like after World War II, the corporations really dominate, right? Mm -hmm. uh, on the strength of like the continuing Cold War military contracts, these kinds of things, right? And there's like this really amazing record of innovation coming out of the corporate labs. Fast forward to the 1970s, and you have some difficult, volatile economic times, mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, stagflation, unemployment, um, you know, uh, deindustrialization. Um, some of these R&D labs have some embarrassing failures, right? Meg Graham has written about RCA, right? They kind of lose their advantage yeah. to the Sonys and uh, Panasonics and the Japanese firms. Uh, Xerox loses its advantage to Canon and some of the other imaging companies in Japan. And... Um, and so what do we do, right? So like um, IBM uh, is in trouble with the Department of Justice, right? They're getting prosecuted for antitrust. So yeah. all, you know, this, this moment in the 70s where the corporations in general um, are struggling creates an opening, I argue, for the individual inventors. And right, so in 1976, uh, you know, you start to see people like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak with Apple, right? Like while IBM's over here worrying about their antitrust prosecution, you know, yeah. they, they're getting wealthy, uh, making big mainframes, selling them to big businesses and universities. Like, what yeah. do I care about a personal computer, right? Those are like bearded hobbyists, right? So they kind of take their eye off the ball. There's like a space for independent inventors to come in. Um, and, you know, there's also some nice government reforms to try to pull uh, the United States out of this malaise, right? So you have like the Bayh-Dole Act. Um, uh, which, you know, if you have uh, government funded research at a university, right, for years, uh, they're like, well, that's taxpayer funded, like the government owns that patent. Well, now with the Bayh-Dole Act, they say, we encourage you to sort of commercialize that and we want you to sort of uh, realize the profits from government funded invention mm -hmm. as a way to sort of spark the economy through innovation. So that takes off that, you know, you know, breeds the like Genentech and like the whole biotech industry. Uh, there's a whole small business innovation research uh, program that gets started at the NSF and other big federal agencies that, you know, small grants to um, to entities with less than 500 people. Right. So the government's trying to like spur innovation from, you know, like the small guys because the big guys are struggling. So that, I argue, kind of creates this, you know, there's a whole series of things that are happening that create space for independent inventors and small scale entrepreneurs to really succeed uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, and you get Steve Jobs, you get Mark Zuckerberg, you get Jeff Bezos, right? You sort of get the classic garage entrepreneur yeah. story and the flourishing of, of that kind of culture, especially in IT, you know, where it's not very capital intensive. If you have a yeah, laptop and some software, software, yeah, like right. you can build a company, right? It's not as capital yeah. intensive as, say, like building Hanford to enrich plutonium. Yeah. So there's a kind of some space created for for small scale inventors. And, and that's the resurgence part of the chapter. Yeah. 
No, I was going to ask you about that digital part, because I think that, you know, a lot of the kind of like, you know, what we see around startups and a lot of that stuff, it really has to do with the, you can have these small organizations that are not so capital intensive and still potentially have, you know, a blockbuster or whatever. So um, it opens up interesting spaces. Um, I was wondering, can you tell the tell listeners about um, the mission of the Lemelson Center? And the reason I'm asking, because I, I wonder about like, you know, like what the role of independent inventors is in that mission and, you know, like what kind of lessons, because you do end the book with kind of like lessons in a sense in, in, in your conclusion, but like what lessons should we take away from your book when we think about the history of invention and innovation? Sure, I appreciate that. Both of those those questions. So first, um, the Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation is a endowed research center at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. So we're in Washington D.C. You know, Smithsonian, nineteen museums, and the zoo. One of those museums is American History, right? So that's like you know uh, the Star Spangled Banner, Babe Ruth baseball, and within that museum, we have this endowed research center. And our mission essentially is to, you know, uh, preserve and interpret the history of invention and innovation uh, within American history. And we also have an educational mission. A lot of what we do is uh, public programming and uh, outreach uh, to like school age kids. We have a space called Spark Lab in the museum um, where, um, you know, uh, students and their families can uh, play with simple material materials like pipe stem cleaners and duct tape. And, you know, we'll give them like an invention challenge, like, you know, build I don't know, build, redesign your own metro car, right? Like there was like a transportation, uh, you know, challenge, you know, metro in DC. And it's like, what would it look like if you redesigned your metro car? And, and like kids would have all this stuff with like disco balls and like really cool stuff, <laughs> right? And the idea is just to like get them thinking creatively and, 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 and creating a space to do that. And of course, we also, beyond the educational mission, we also have a scholarly mission, right? So people like me write books and, you know, uh, host symposia and things like that on, on different topics. So, that, so that's the Lemelson Center. Um, the lessons, uh, and I should, I should also say who is Jerome Lemelson, right? So he was one of these independent inventors, right? So Jerome Lemelson was from New Jersey, uh, independent inventor, uh, in the 20th century, uh, post-war 1950 to about, I think I'm trying to remember what year he died. I think it was 1996, but very prolific inventor, uh, something like 600 patents and uh, was one of these people who licensed, right? So he didn't make and manufacture his own patents, but he licensed to all kinds of companies uh, and, and became very wealthy and then donated a large endowment to the Smithsonian to establish the center in 1995, just before he died. So um, second question, what, what are the lessons from the book? Um, you know, you asked me in the beginning, like what motivated the book and the you know, the question that I always keep coming back to is like, who invents, right? And so we know that corporate R&D labs invent, and we know that um, individual inventors invent. We know that universities have people on faculty, engineering people that spin out inventions and startups. We know the federal government invents, right? Where there's labs, you know, Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, right? There's all kinds of stuff going on at the federal labs. Uh, and, and I think one of the lessons of the book is you know, what's the best way to promote innovation is to take this eclectic approach. Um, you've got people coming up with ideas in all kinds of places. 
Uh, and the more you allow different kinds of flowers to bloom, the better your chances that something cool will come out of it, right? So like we shouldn't just invest in federal laboratories or corporations to the detriment of universities or, or individual vendors or vice versa, right? Like we should mm -hmm. sort of spread our, our investments around and hope that um, if we're pursuing innovation in a lot of different forms, something good is going to come out of it. Just like I said, like the law of large numbers, like, you know, out of all those flowers, something cool will bloom. I think that's one of the lessons. Um, I think another lesson is this kind of complementarity, right? Individual inventors are good at certain things. Like they have a ton of ideas, but they're terrible at commercialization. Firms yeah. are great at commercialization. They're great at scale. They're great at manufacturing stuff. They advertise. Sometimes they can be a little conservative in terms of ideas. That's why those alliances are really important, right? If you have an independent inventor with tons of great ideas, but not great at commercialization, match up with a firm that has fewer ideas, but is great at commercialization, that's a great partnership. That's a really complementary uh, partnership. And so I think that's another lesson that, that comes out of the book is like, let's, let's invest in a lot of different ways uh, of, of invention and innovation. And, you know, if we work together and across those sources of invention, some good things will happen. Yeah. One thing I really liked about uh, the way you ended the book is your kind of hymn to uh, individual uh, creators, you know? And I, I mean, the way, the way I would think of it in this, I took a class uh, with David Allen Chow on the history of R&D and I remember kind of just being a kind of, it was on my first semester of grad school. I was, ex I was, I mean, I'm always, you know, I'm still dumb, but I was very dumb then, you know, and very kind of like, I was a first year Hard grad it. student who was too cocky and everything else. And, uh, you know, I remember kind of suggesting that um, through this formalization process of R&D labs that you can kind of turn invention into a mechanical process or something, you know, that individuals in a sense become, uh, less uh important to the overall process and Hounchel's response to me was like he he's like just see just see if you think that at the end of this class because ultimately uh you know we can talk about teams we can talk about collaboration but the role of individuals coming up with new ideas is like it's never going to go away you know right. as part of this process and so i really enjoyed how you kind of like you know i i hear your thousand flowers bloom uh, picture and there's like you know we need lots of different kinds of uh, innovative organizations whether it's businesses or universities or whatever but we still need ultimately it's about you know these individuals coming up with ideas so I really enjoyed that man thank you I appreciate the chance to talk about the book thank you for having me today yeah dude it was great thanks so much for coming Eric no you're really generous thanks Lee I enjoyed it I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. Check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and is supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are hosted in the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the media production manager with Virginia Tech Publishing and serves as producer and sound engineer for Peoples and Things. 
Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.